0: You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So, welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazil and I'm joined again by Ben Simon for the April Simulcast Journal Club. How are you, Ben?
1: I'm good, my friend. It's so nice to see you and looking forward to a good discussion.
0: Absolutely. It's always the highlight of the month to talk simulation with you and to get a little bit of an update on what's happening in the Ben Simon simulation world. But uh, yeah, we're going to talk about video and we can talk about video, not even in the simulation world, but in fact, in the real world. Tell us about that, Ben.
1: Yeah, so this is cool. We have, I think we've talked a lot on Simulcast about how we can improve ourselves, our teams, our environments and our systems through Sim. Uh, And we've also kind of repeatedly acknowledged that when it comes to us getting better at getting better, that there's a rich and untapped field of actual clinical experiences to deconstruct and reflect upon that could potentially have more value and be financially a lot cheaper uh, than repeatedly creating imaginary events when real ones keep wheeling through our doors hundreds of times a day with alarming regularity. And Roussin and Weinstock refer to this as Simzone 4. But for many of us, this is the idea of debriefing real events. But in the pursuit of higher learning, that can actually still be pretty intimidating. And while clinical event debriefing is definitely growing in popularity and sophistication and reach, there's one adjunct to debriefing real events that is most often left off the table, and that is the capturing of real video of actual resuscitations. And I'd go so far as to say this is pretty taboo in a lot of workplaces I've visited or worked in. Uh, And it also kind of breaks my heart a little bit in that there's this potential for us to learn so much from watching ourselves uh, but we avoid it for a multitude of valid and complicated reasons and it's a really messy issue that potentially presents a massive identity threat to healthcare staff a massive medico-legal threat to the hospital Uh, And we don't have much guidance or structure to approaching such a big problem. So it was with great joy that I found you dropped these two articles into our Dropbox folder recently, Vic. And I also read your relatively recent blog on IceNet about this. And one of your points just really resonated with me, which was that as an educational culture, we have effectively separated learning from work. And therefore underemphasized learning through work. And I was wondering if you'd be happy to unpack that a little bit because I thought that was super smart.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's certainly not original. Lots of people have been writing about the idea of learning from our work rather than separating the two. And Stephen Billett from Griffith University is one of them. But in fact, just this week, I was reading a lovely paper from Karen Mann, late of Dalhousie University, where she actually framed up these sort of two competing tensions as one lens of learning as being about acquisition of knowledge and skills. But probably the more powerful learning is one of participation and that really brings in all those contextual factors whether it's the other people who you are working with or the environment in which you're working or the patient groups that you're working with but in fact if we can shift our focus to just thinking this is a set of knowledge and skills to be attained and instead think this is a community into which I am entering and then participating and this community is a practice kind of concepts coming in here and I think really that Uh, is why we need to make more of learning from the work that we do in the clinical environment. So certainly not original, but it uh, really resonates with me. There is a lot we can do in SIM, and I think video can help there, despite some of the literature, and we might come back to that. Uh, But I think there is much more to be learned from work, and uh, video might help.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for that. So well, the first paper is entitled The Ethical, Legal and Administrative Implications of the Use of Video and Audio Recording in an Emergency Department in Ontario, Canada. It's by Stuart Douglas et al., and it was published in BMJ Innovations in September 2020. And the article is essentially kind of two-pronged. It describes the use of video recording in an ED in Ontario and their intentions, and then it uses this as an underpinning framework to explore opinions on the judicious and safe use of video feedback on real events. They describe barriers to implementation, some of which would be pretty easy to predict, such as employee concerns, privacy risks, and the lack of a clear ethical and regulatory framework. And certainly, while they can't necessarily alleviate all of our personal concerns, the article does start that conversation about addressing the need for an ethical and regulatory framework. So they provide a team with expertise in clinical, regulatory, legal, QI, patient safety and ethical domains to reflect on the critical considerations come up through their sort of case description of what they're doing in their department. They then describe the potential advantages of video review. It's things like a more objective representation of events, the ability to make a more broad systems assessment, and uh, one thing that I really liked was detecting minor deviations from practice that might cumulatively impact patient care, which reminded me a lot of your 1% work, Vic. It then divides, dies into some very specific challenges. And while these are discussed within the framework of how this works in Ontario, there's some really useful stuff in here for consideration, even if the legal answer isn't the same in your state or country. So first up, there's the issue of consent. And this, I would have to say, even in the article, gets pretty murky pretty quickly. There's clearly an argument here that hospitals can source visual data for analysis on improving care, but it's also, and it's also argued interestingly, that to not do so potentially impacts future patient outcomes. And that could sometimes be the status quo being a less ethical stance than doing the hard thing here. This is then contrasted, though, between the values and wishes of a very vulnerable human being presenting an extremist to the apartment might feel, and also the impossibility of obtaining consent for many patients in that moment. Things can also get challenging when thinking about the difference between video for education, video for quality improvement, and video for research, each of which can have different levels of restriction, guidance, and process about how to move forward with them. The article then discusses access to the video, both from the patient's perspective and the percentage perspective of a coroner, for example, and argues that a patient could reasonably ask for access to the video, as could a court seeking evidence of malpractice in a coroner's case. They describe one potential safeguard around this for hospitals being the concept of quality assurance privilege, where things such as M&M, for example, are legally protected as confidential to ensure a hospital can have frank conversations to improve their care without necessarily the fear of being sued into the ground when something goes wrong and comes up. They discuss physician perspectives around the medico-legal vulnerability of this versus the medico-legal protection of actively engaging in quality assurance processes and how that could be embedded within credentialing. And then finally, they talk about secure storage, which might be a little uh, mundane-seeming but a super important kind of concept when we're talking about recording real video of real patients so if you're anything like me at this point you might be feeling that it's all too hard dear god who would do this and they give you the answer by providing their own case study of what their department is planning to do what their guidance and agreements have been and some of the arguments they have used to make it happen within their po- hospital and then the article just kind of stops there Vic which uh I was a little hope-broken by. what did you think <laughs>
0: So I think three things. One is I love their table one where they've examined this conceptually and they've got a statement, a supporting argument and then the counter argument just as you kind of summarised there. But I think it's really nicely laid out and then they've got relevant sources of literature which can support some of those arguments. And I think that means it's not just a what are they doing, I'm going to copy it, but you can look at these arguments and think what's the concepts behind it. Uh, the second thing I would say is just going to take my hat off to them in these legal and regulatory stuff, they didn't go, oh, my God, that's the enemy is the is the legal department at the hospital. They actually embraced it and said, this is what we want to do, help us get there. And so I got this whole sense of partnerships with uh, groups that I wouldn't have thought were traditionally people we work closely with, but it's clearly going to have a good outcome for them and it means everyone's invested in the outcome rather than just being uh, people to be overcome, as it were. And then the third thing, your little disappointment. Uh, so. As I was writing that blog post, which for simulcast listeners I will put the link in, somewhat narcissistically in the in the in the show notes, but uh, I did write to the first author and said, "Where are you up to?" And he said, "Don't worry, there's another paper on the way, so hopefully we'll get to hear about their success or otherwise."
1: <laughs> Excellent. I look forward to it. Um, yeah, I really loved uh, that table one as well, and it felt a little bit like some real quality debate prep for somebody who wants to start out and try and create this huge organizational change, which I think is really important given how insurmountable it might seem for a lot of us. Um, And I think the thing that really fascinated me from like a meta perspective with this patient is, with this paper rather, is this is sort of really about um, that challenge you have when the status quo is considered acceptable just because it's the status quo and so any change is perceived as a threat even though it might potentially have advantages for everybody involved Um, and trying to break that down and make people aware of the risks they're already taking day to day by not actively reviewing what they're doing, by not looking at how they're performing in their recess, by not seeing how they're engaging with families and what they could do better about their body language and the positioning in the room and everything. Uh, it's a real tragedy, uh, but very complex. So I, I really loved um, just looking at that from that perspective of how things are now is not how they have to be.
0: Yeah, and I love that juxtaposition of we're video recording all these people for security reasons. Why are we not doing it to actually improve their care?
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's so true, right? We can we can break it down when there's a security risk. There's like there's no ethical limitation on us going through that. But uh, but when it comes to actually doing our job better, we all fall down. Tricky. Yes, so. Tricky. That brings us to our second article, which I was hoping would bring us a little more evidence about uh, some of the benefits of video debriefing real events and also what other people are doing. So this article is entitled Filming for Auditing of Real-Life Emergency Teams, a Systematic Review, and I apologize to the authors for butchering their surnames, but uh, this was uh, Lise Brogaard and Niels Oldberg Is that even closer? Do you know these guys?
0: Uh, I do know Lise Brogard because that is Christian Crowe's sister and she came to visit us. Yes, exactly. So uh, I think you've done pretty well in pronunciation, but I'm afraid I'm not going to back my Danish against (laughs)
1: You're not going to join me down here in the Australian uh, pit of pronunciation Sounds
0: all right to me, mate. Great.
1: (laughs) Cool. So this was published in BMJ Open Quality and it aims to ask three primary questions. Where has video review been used? In what populations and what settings? How has video review been used, including technical solutions, legal and ethical issues? And then, what is the evidence that video review improves? patient care, uh, which I think is the great uh, white whale of this particular systematic review. So essentially, they found 50 relevant studies from a broad range of resuscitative teams, both obstetric, neonatal, trauma, intensive care, which had some good description of strategies and consent wavering slash confidentiality processes. And then five of those studies had some goals to measure performance improvement, mostly in the way of speed or adherence to guidelines. And the review then makes some recommendations and observations through a SWAT review, which is strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And for me, this was a real... Uh, highlight of the article in that there's a lot of useful granular data here, including thoughts about how to set up cameras to automatically record on movement. Uh, to the fact that while we might think patients might object to this, actually in studies where consent was obtained, the vast majority of papers patients consented, like over ninety five percent. Much like the previous article, however, the conclusions did end with more questions than answers, which I suppose is appropriate for where we are on this particular journey, Vic. Um, what were your thoughts?
0: Yeah, very well done, uh, systematic review, and it's just worth, often those of us involved in education and simulation, we may not be expert at reviewing some of these more quantitative papers, and in fact this is a nice illustration and you can see the Prisma Uh, guidelines and how they identified their articles. So it's a nice little lesson in methods for those of us who haven't done systematic reviews, Uh, but you can see how systematic they were. And you can also see that they pulled out some really relevant issues here, as you say, not all of which had some evidence, but I think even findings like so many people agreed uh, might be persuasive for some of the legal and ethical decision makers in hospitals to go, oh, looks like most patients are on board with this, so maybe it's not as risky as we thought. So I think it's still very useful. I think there are some practical tips there, things like forgetting to turn on cameras and stuff like that, that you think, oh my goodness, we've spent all this time debating the ethics. And actually so much of it is where do you put these cameras and how do you turn them on and what do you do with the footage and how do you store it? And I think that is uh, very useful to read through as well. I think one of the other things that came out of here was just in the background, they had dug up some interesting statistics and It seems that privacy concerns only became a big thing in this millennium and they said the number of studies using video review has dropped dramatically since 2003 and, in fact, trauma centres had decreased their routine video recording from 58% to more than 18% after they introduced HIPAA into the US, which is a privacy legislation. So I was very um, struck by that. And I wasn't that surprised when I thought back because when I was a registrar before that time, uh, we used to do lots of things without questioning the sort of patient's perspective on this. Now, that was mostly not a good thing. Uh, and we wouldn't have thought twice about videoing. We wouldn't have even thought to ask the patient. Once again, not a good thing. But I suppose the unintended consequences that we don't do a lot of this work because we're now uh, assumed that patients will be against the idea and are not being prepared to test it out.
1: Which is really fascinating because, uh, in some ways that suggests, uh, we have sacrificed some patient autonomy and actually become more paternalistic in this, uh, in our move about like appropriate concerns about them having a voice. We've actually potentially taken over their, taken away their voice in just a different way. Um,
0: paradoxically. Yes.
1: Yeah. And then, uh, Secondly, to me, I guess this, this that I didn't know about that data and that um, there's this great irony in the fact that our lives in general are documented, shared and promoted via video more than we ever have in the history of humanity. Uh, and yet when it comes to research or uh, quality improvement, we've dropped. So it's an interesting dichotomy.
0: I know, I know. Hospitals are not game to video record people for fear of improving their care, uh, but Siri's probably got every word that was spoken in the debrief room between all the mobile phones, in the recess room rather, between all the mobile
1: phones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm sure Amazon's probably got the details of every spousal argument we've had in this house as well. So it's, <laughs> it's <laughs> you know, it, it's funny, hey? Like, we'll all click accept on every... um algorithm on our phone apps but when it comes to comes to uh this stuff we get highly highly risk averse
0: yeah Hmm. interesting i suppose um before we leave this general topic then it would be worth Making sure that we identified the relevance to SIM. I mean, obviously, I think there's uh, relevance for our team performance, which we're trying to uh, improve with SIM. And I think these conversations can complement those we have in the simulation debrief rooms. But it does highlight the point, and it's mentioned a couple of times about does debriefing using video help in simulation? And uh, look, there is some conflicting evidence about this, but probably the best paper on it is uh, Adam Cheng's and team's meta-analysis on the various elements that might influence debriefing. And they concluded, and it's been much cited, that uh, it didn't tend to make a difference. But this was based on four studies in which the outcome measures were what, Uh, sometimes learning outcomes, sometimes otherwise. And I don't know that that's enough to base... Uh, A complete dismissal of the idea. I do think it's practically quite hard to do, uh, but as one who did a lot of that uh, 10 years ago, I think if well used and with good equipment and with people who can balance the cognitive load of managing the video with the conversation, I think it's actually got some advantages. So I feel like it's kind of been thrown out a lot now, whereas I'd like to see a little bit more about finding the place for it rather than deciding if it's in or out.
1: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more because um, I was in an interesting spot where when I was the Sim Fellow at the Royal Children's Hospital, that was sort of in the time where everybody was sort of doing a lot of video playback. And I certainly, as a registrar, I found it hugely transformative just in terms of hearing what my actual conflict avoidant voice volume was when trying to lead a team and getting the feedback and watching my posture and, and recognising how I needed to change stuff. So I have a hard time overcoming my own personal bias of how much it helped me grow as a clinician and a team leader by watching and reflecting and getting feedback on what I was doing. Um, and I then came back after a period of away and found nobody was doing Video debriefing anymore in, a, in the same unit. And I think it, it came up again. I've, I felt like a lot of the time it was less about is this a useful learning strategy and more a quick fix for cognitive load. And I've certainly found sometimes just giving people a play by play and deconstructing stuff could be really valuable learning for them in terms of getting a deeper understanding of what went down. Um, so I agree. I think it really has an important place and i think i guess it highlights that a well-done study uh sometimes doesn't necessarily mean that the whole picture is there
0: mm, absolutely um anyway well that sounds like another journal club episode if ever i heard one ben sounds a great. deep dive video assisted mm. debriefing all right should we do our other couple of papers
1: that would be lovely
0: So one of the two that I picked uh, is recently published in Advances in Simulation just this year by Bentley et al called Debrief It All, a tool for inclusion of safety too. And this, of course, is open access in advances. Uh, And it's largely a commentary, but it offers us a tool to help us with um, systems-focused debriefing where we want to, as they say, uh, debrief with a safety two approach. Now, what is that? So they describe this in the background and they describe how we're having a bit of a shift in the way that we think about patient safety. So-called safety one was all about trying to avoid errors. Safety two, though, is a little bit of a shift to say errors are going to happen and it's more about the resilience of the system and the teams and the people in it to cope with these errors. And I'm going to quote uh, Sidney Decker, I think it is here. Safety is not about the absence of negatives. It is about the presence of capacities. And uh, for people interested in reading more about safety too, just Google Eric Holnagel, Sidney Decker, Jeffrey Braithwaite, all of these people have contributed to papers about safety too. And so the upshot for us in simulation and probably in clinical debriefing as well is that we really need to study and debrief all events, including the so-called routine and mundane, rather than the preoccupation we've tended to have with high acuity, high excitement and with when things went wrong and there were performance gaps. And as we know, a lot of debriefing literature is about identifying performance gaps and trying to find ways to remedy them. So this paper says, well, how do we go about incorporating these safety two approaches? And they offer us a case vignette uh, of a story about just such a debrief room where the participants went, well, it's not much to talk about because it all seemed to go fine. And the debriefers sort of pointed out that maybe one of the key things is to ask, well, why did it go well? And maybe we can identify successful workarounds that staff have got uh, within their organisational resilience. And so in the process of that, they offer us a debriefing tool and tell us how they developed that, that we might be able to take into our own debrief rooms if we're thinking about uh, talking with our teams about these kinds of things. Now, the debriefing tool would be recognisable in structure to most debriefers. There's a kind of setting the scene phase. Just to be clear, we're going to talk about all kinds of things, including the everyday and the things that went well. Uh, There's a little summary of the case. And in the analysis phase is probably where it looks a little bit different to what we might see in the average uh, PEARLS framework, more to do with the kind of questions that are asked. And they're really trying to tease out, well, how is the work actually done, what kind of variability, what adaptability, what flexibility, what workarounds? And they offer us some key phrases. What resources enable good performance? Are there strategies that are used in this case or in your normal work that uh, allow you to be more efficient or more effective? And so there's some lovely phrases there that I think wouldn't be in everybody's uh, lexicon sitting in a debrief room, but I think which allows us to expand this idea of debriefing all the performance, not just the things where we're seeing performance gaps. So I think uh, overall, I I really like this tool. I could see myself looking through that list and trying to adopt some of those questions and I do think this is another advertisement for knowing what you're talking about. If you're going to be debriefing about patient safety, you probably need to be across these concepts around safety too. Uh and I guess just to sort of point out here before I hear your thoughts, Ben, is there's some other really nice literature out there in this same area. Marette Dubay and team their pearls for systems integration sort of tries to come at some of the same concepts uh, as well as Peter Dieckman's uh, variation and adaptation, learning from success, from advances in simulation. Both those articles, I think, would be complementary to this uh, tool and the way that they've presented it. Uh, what did you think?
1: Yeah, I agree in terms of the a highlight for me being the tool itself and uh, I think it was good scaffolding that they've sort of layered it on top of uh, a framework that debriefers will be familiar with and then uh, I really just loved the very explicit clear examples of phrasing to shift people into that safety to headspace and i think you sort of uh, already mentioned this but it's such a very different beast um and i think uh, particularly when debriefing culture has very much focused on exploring frames uh establishing psychological safety and and a variety of techniques to sort of give people feedback in non-threatening ways and and move them to be motivated for change that we haven't developed as sophisticated a sort of conversational tool belt for getting them to diagnose the things that are actually going on in that sim. Um, And so a phrase like, what made this case more difficult than it needed to be, Or was there a similar case that didn't go so well? And how was this different? There's such, um, you can see exactly what they're trying to do. But if you haven't heard phrasing like that before, uh, you're not going to spontaneously get there very often. Um, And it does really force people conversationally down into that analytical mode to really think about the what went well, what didn't go well, but why did it do that, and what does mm-hmm. that mean for us, and what does that mean for the next patient in our department? Um, I did yeah. feel like maybe documentation mm-hmm. and escalation were potentially underrepresented in the in the um, tool a little bit. Mm-hmm. In terms of this, was very much here are some t- techniques to debrief and identify stuff, um, but there wasn't as much on uh, the importance of closing that debrief with, okay, this is mm. important. Who's going to own this particular issue? How are we going to escalate it to the powers that be and how are we going to make sure that it's acted on and accounted for? Um, yeah, but- there's a
0: sort of a reference to it in there, sort of summary thing, but you're right, it was probably less emphasized i think you really hit the nail on the head there because it seems like the only tool that we've had up until now for managing good performance is appreciation uh which is that was good and we've almost used that as oh now they feel good about something i can go hard on some performance gap which is a little lazy uh compared to this which is as you say a rigorous kind of why analysis and stretching us
1: yeah and it also in some ways um I think we like to talk about being learner-centered and focused on impacting patient care, but uh, in some ways, this is a a more pure form of that. And so it's a little alarming that we haven't got that good at it really in 10, 15 years of uh, sort of flourishing debriefing culture. So it's a really exciting space to be in. How about 200
0: years of medical culture? Yeah,
1: (laughs) absolutely. You mentioned that, Debriefing the good stuff, debriefing the mundane stuff is really important. And I think just as a slight aside, conversation aside, getting people happy to have that conversation and see it as productive and valuable for them, particularly in an educational, sort of a semi-educational sphere can be really tricky uh, in that I'll often get a lot of disappointment if I hadn't made the sim very difficult, even if there's valuable learning. People we've, we've culturally uh ingrained that we're going to do something exciting and complex and then you will grow and trying to do something very simple and talk about doing it better Uh, it's it's not received as well
0: no i know and people justify that with all kinds of references to zone of proximal development and stretch goals but uh I think you I think you're right, and they make reference to that in the article that this sort of baseline is oh, it's not much to debrief about. it all went fine. Uh, I've certainly been in plenty of debrief rooms with exactly that sentiment, yeah, absolutely, great, mm-hmm. all right, and then the last article we seem to be doing a lot that's got nothing to do with sim, but uh, this one too, but I think it has everything to do with if you're interested in teams. And so this is an article uh, by Femke Dijkstra. There we go. Still going on the European names. I don't know how I'm going Ben, and uh, and a team from the Netherlands. And it's called Learning from Learning about Stress from Building, Drilling, and Flying: A Scoping Review on Team Performance and Stress in Non-Medical Fields. And this is from the Scandinavian Journal of Trauma, Resuscitation, and Emergency Medicine, which is also an open access journal. So available for everyone to read and just as a little bit of an aside this journal actually partners with a podcast a bit like we do with advances in simulation they partner with the resus room podcast and it was that partnership that was one of my role models for thinking about how we might work with a journal as well oh cool Hmm. but uh, what about the article so obviously they want to look at How do teams perform under stress? And they thought, well, why don't we go right outside the medical construct and see if there's some similarities, some differences or something else to learn? Uh, And I think the reason to read this, um, even though it's not about SIM and it's not even about healthcare, is because I think – To understand more about teamwork gives us an ability to debrief with nuance and insights that are more than just performative. Uh, You should have had better leadership and better communication. So that's my justification for putting it in here. Uh, So what did they actually do? Well, they did a scoping literature review uh, articles on team performance in stressful situations with outcome measures at a team level. Uh, so as you might imagine, there's a breadth of articles that they came up with and they described quite in depth about how they went about that search. But they ended up actually with only 15 articles. And again, there's a nice Prisma uh, little diagram there that shows how they got them. And they had sort of multiple insights, but they categorized that into three ways that I thought was quite good. So the first one that says, what are the causes of stress uh, in teams? And they identified what they call performance pressure, which is usually from the outside Role pressure, where people are not entirely sure what they're supposed to do, and time pressure. And certainly that's one that's familiar to us in critical care and emergency medicine. And they use words like uncertainty, challenge, or threat was how people might interpret those things. So the first category, as I said, the causes of stress. The next category is what happens to teams under stress. And this was quite interesting to me is that they naturally tend to get a very narrow focus and they tend towards task execution. And, in fact, sometimes at the expense of teamwork. So they stop coordinating, they stop talking, and people get really focused on their tasks. And I think that was useful to me because I think I've seen that before but haven't quite named it before. Uh, Also, what happens to teams under stress? They become more unclear uh, responsibilities, a diminished understanding of the situation and unsurprisingly emotional effects on the individuals in the team. And then what we're all looking for, the third category of thing they looked at, well, what helps? Uh, And they said communication, but they went a little deeper on that. They said people start to use short phrases and the communications happen between fewer team members, which I think I've certainly seen as our trauma teams operate better with semi-autonomous sub-teams as opposed to these grand recaps involving 30 people and everyone reporting back in closed-loop communication, which is clearly a ridiculous concept if you've got 30 or 35 people in a room. Uh, What else helps? unsurprisingly, having a shared mental model and a lot is vested in that. What is this shared mental model? They use the term the team brain uh, and really just having shared understanding and shared knowledge of where we're up to and also situational awareness. So maybe not anything we didn't know about teams, but I think useful to see that these Concepts are really across disciplines. And I think that formulation of uh, stress and teams was quite useful for me. Uh, Ben, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I really love the spirit of this article and the intention to move outside our own professional echo chambers and to search for solutions in other fields. Uh, And I know, you know, that is essentially how healthcare simulation evolves. I was noticing other professional teams doing some of this stuff Uh, and so I was very excited to see what insights they came up with. I was a little sad in that uh, they weren't as different as I had expected but sometimes that's a lesson in and of itself and and in terms of benchmarking and working out where you're at. Um, It seemed to have, I think there are a number of concepts that um, you actually many years ago now at one of the papers that we had as an extra discussion for the Journal Club was um, Elizabeth Rosenman's article on changing systems through effective teams, a role for simulation, and then again broke teamwork down into affect, behaviour, and cognition. Um, And so I did, again, enjoy uh, particularly the discussion around uh, transactive memory systems, uh, which sort of reminded me a little bit of, Eduardo Salas when uh, we saw him at uh, Sydney Sim Health uh, where he talked about the number one uh, team killer worldwide um, is a lack of clear roles. And um, and so I really enjoyed that part of it. I was expecting a few more different insights rather than reinforcement that what we were talking about is good. But I think if you're not as familiar with some of those concepts, it's a really nice Uh, granular breakdown of some of those things. And I I would just want to echo, I think, uh, sure, this isn't specifically about simulation, but I think most simulationists make a claim that their intervention uh, is heavily uh, about improving team performance. And I think that sometimes we can neglect uh, the importance of being a little bit of a content expert in that field. I also really love Mm. As a slight aside, um, the first time I'd heard about transactive memory systems was, I think, one of Malcolm Gladwell's podcasts, where I'm completely making up this quote, but he sort of essentially described how uh, transactive memory systems is the idea that we store our memories in other people, uh, which was just such a beautiful Summary of it, and he used that analogy of a, a an old married couples who have forgotten to do certain things, but actively don't make the decision to learn that because they've stored that ability and memory in their other half. Um, and that's always yeah. resonated with me about the importance of that in a team.
0: And fortunately, most of us have now developed that relationship with our phones.
1: Yeah, well, it is right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Phone numbers, bam, straight in there. I don't yeah, know any anyone exactly. No.
0: All right, so, but, uh, yeah, both those articles, again, we'll have linked in the blog post associated with this podcast and they're both open access articles, so feel free to have a look at them yourself. Well, Ben, just about time to wrap up and think about next month. A couple of news items. Uh, One is if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to the simulcast rap about CSAM, the... uh, Society for Simulation in Europe conference, which I've just finished recording and should be up by the time you listen to this one. Go back and hear my chat with Susan Ella about uh, what happened at the conference. Uh, Also, just by way of news, there's a a uh, paper we might even talk about at Simulcast, but uh, I just came across it recently, and it is the Health Education England National Vision for the Role of Simulation and Immersive Learning Technologies in Healthcare. And it's just, I think, for someone who doesn't usually like these kind of government documents, really, really insightful. So uh, we might have a little bit of a chat about that on the podcast, but I'll also put a link to that in the notes as well. Uh, but what are we reading this month, Ben?
1: Uh, well, Vic, I haven't decided yet, <laughs> but well, That's it might okay be a good. It might be well, it might be a good time to mention. Um, we're going to wrap up the blog part of the Journal Club discussion uh, after I think ooh, four and a half years now. Um, uh, mainly just because Journal Club has opened a lot of doors for me, and and that has led to less time. Uh, and I would just want to thank everybody for one of the most engaging uh heartwarming and rewarding parts of my career as a doctor so far and thank everyone for all of their contributions and how much i have got to grow from everybody's sharing that community of practice over the last four years so uh i look forward to continuing our monthly journal clubs
0: Yes, Journal Club is not going away.
1: No, just slightly less time commitment from me. Uh, And if you've got thoughts or want to share a paper um, or ideas on a paper, just feel free to tag us on Twitter uh, and we'd love to keep the conversation going.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's also, if people do want to comment, uh, comments on the blog are always welcome, and we do get a few of those from time to time, Uh, but also happy to have these conversations, respectfully so, on social media as well if people do want to, as you said, let us know about things we should be talking about on Simulcast Journal Club. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Ben. I guess that's the April Simulcast Journal Club. Uh, Good to see you and see you next month.
1: See you then. You're listening to Simulcast.